Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, and thank you for tuning in. You are listening to a surprise Thursday podcast of Fiscum All, your weekly consistency check on America's political and legal file systems. I am your host, T. Greg Doucette, recording from my apartment, La Chateau T-Dot, on the southwest corner of Durham, North Carolina. You've noticed that we have been gone for a while. I wanted to start off with an apology to y'all. Uh, don't really have a good excuse. I did have a post on our Patreon page a couple of days ago kind of explaining what was going on. Long and short of it is that uh, in addition to life, uh, my law firm is a bit of a mess. So I would mentioned a few podcasts back that I am by myself again because Marissa became a law professor. Normally not a big deal, but because our the way our stuff works. So we do criminal defense work. And we also do business litigation. And when you're doing trials, be it criminal or civil, one of the things that you try to focus on is making sure that you don't have multiple trials happening around the same time. And just by happenstance, you know, several of the cases we took, you know, a year and a half, two years, two and a half years ago, uh, have all been coming to trial all at once. So I've been going insane trying to do that, plus manage the cases that settle, plus manage new client intake and everything else. And I've just not had the chance to put together an outline. So I'm sorry for those of you that have wondered where we have been. Uh, I still have been tweeting away on Twitter. If you are not following me, you can do that at Greg underscore Doucette. Uh, because when we're in court and there's downtime, I don't have anything to do. So I either play video games or I tweet. Uh, but in terms of the podcast, we have been gone. And I know several of you like hearing about criminal justice fuckery. And I apologize for our absence. So what we're going to do to try and get back into the swing of things. I'm not done with trials yet. I've got one uh, on Friday. I've got one next week. And then I think that's it until about May. Uh, but what we're going to do is we're going to do a series of mini pods where – you know, in the past, what I've done is I force myself to sit down and just do an outline until we get through all of the stories in any given week. So you'll have some weeks where there's only like an hour's worth of stories on a 15-page outline. We've had other weeks we've gone to almost two hours on a 20 or 25-page outline. Rather than focus on getting all of the stories before I stop, uh, we're going to try and do a series of mini pods where I'm going to stop at like 15 stories and then record and put it out there until we can try and get back in the swing of recording regularly. So that's the plan. We'll see how it works, but just want to give you all a heads up on how that goes. It's been so long since we have done an episode. I also wanted to give you all an update on our fourth annual Eastway food raiser last month. Uh, it turned out exceptionally well. We raised just a hair's breadth under $7,000, which was way more than we had ever raised for anything ever. Our previous record was 4000 and some change for the Boys and Girls Club, so we almost doubled that, and it was more than triple what we had raised for last year's food raiser. So we managed to feed every single kid at the entire elementary school. So remember, when this started four years ago, we were just feeding one class. And then a year later, that expanded to like three classrooms. A year after that, we expanded to the entire grade. And now we're at the point where we're feeding an entire school. So it's, it's super friggin' impressive. Uh, I was mildly terrified because it, it was a lot of food. So hopefully those of you that uh, participated in it, you saw the results thread. If not, let me know and I'll give you a link to it. But it turned out great. I'm working on the roadmap for 2019 and how that's going to work out. Also trying to set up a uh, charitable foundation so the folks who contribute to the food raiser this year can also take a tax deduction if you want it. I've got one other podcast note. Uh, we got messages from about six of y'all. 
uh, about a situation where Patreon had deplatformed somebody, had kicked them off of the Patreon system, and you'd indicated that you were not able to continue financially supporting us through Patreon and asked if there was some other way to do it, like PayPal or Venmo or something like that. Uh, short answer is no, because to be honest, I haven't been doing a good enough job with the Patreon account as it is. I'm not entirely sure I could add on another one at the same time. We're still trying to get the podcast back on track. Uh, so no hard feelings about that. I would ask, you know, in lieu of the financial contribution, please tell all of your friends to listen to us because one of the side effects of my sporadic month-long disappearances uh, have been that a lot of folks just don't listen anymore. They don't listen to the podcast because the subscriptions fall off. So uh, tell your friends, and we'll go from there. And I think that's it. So we talked about the new story for the new uh, pod format, 10 to 15 stories. I think this week we've got about 15. We covered the Patreon stuff. I think we're good to go. Okay, if you have not already done so, Please make sure to join the conversation online. The Twitter account is at Fiskamall. That is at F-S-C-K-E-M-A-L-L. If you'd like to leave us a written comment, you can do that on our website, Fiskamall.com. That is F-S-C-K-E-M-A-L-L.com. And if you'd like to become one of our financial sponsors, you can do that on Patreon.com slash Fisk. That is Patreon.com slash F-S-C-K. Not going to get too deep in politics, just some quick overviews. Uh, We are in day 30-something of the shutdown. I don't know how long it has been. It's been a while. I thought it was going to be over after about, you know, three weeks, give or take. I thought once the Democrats took over Congress, we would get some progress. That apparently is wrong because our beloved papaya POTUS, Donald Trump, uh, is a wrecking ball. I mean, that's he's absolutely incapable of governing, and the Republicans in Congress either have no balls, no spine, or both, and they're not willing to stand up to him, and it sucks. And my heart goes out to all of the federal workers who are on the verge of not getting their second paycheck this coming Friday. Um, so hopefully we'll get some resolution soon. And then separate from the shutdown, you had the president's new lawyer, Rudy Giuliani, America's mayor, uh, confess on one of the Sunday talk shows that there was collusion going on, but it was supposedly over with by the time the election happened. That was on uh, This Week with George Stephanopoulos. And then in a separate article with New Yorker magazine, confessed that he had listened to tapes about the uh, the Trump-Russia collusion. And then when the editor said, what tapes, Rudy says, oh, I shouldn't have said tapes. Uh, so I, I really feel like we should just put Rudy on TV for an extended period of time. We would have the entire Trump-Russia investigation covered in the span of a few hours. He would just blurt it all out, but, uh, you know, such as it is. In the court news, we've got a case out of the Third Circuit that I'm going to give you a link to that presents an interesting, uh, how do I want to word this? It's an interesting legal question about the concept of qualified immunity, but it also kind of presents an etymological question of what words mean. So the case is Bryan versus United States. Uh, There are several plaintiffs. There are several defendants. It's out of the District Court of the Virgin Islands on appeal to the Third Circuit Court of Appeals, which is this is where this comes from. Uh, but I'm going to give you a quote from the summary and then basically kind of explain what happens from there. Uh, the court writes, quote, in 2008, Carlisle Bryan, Julie Bieberman, and Charles Francis, residents of St. Croix in the U.S. Virgin Islands, embarked on a Caribbean cruise aboard the Adventure of the Seas. 
Their trip took them to a number of foreign ports before they returned to the United States. During their trip, U.S. Customs and Border Protection, and I'm putting that in air quotes even though the court did not because they're not protecting shit, uh, officers searched their cabins on suspicion of drug smuggling activity. Those searches yield no contraband and prompted the three travelers to assert Bivens' claims against the officers for allegedly violating their Fourth Amendment rights. So you had a narcotic search that turned up nothing because they weren't actually drug smugglers. Uh, because we conclude that the officers are entitled to qualified immunity, we affirm the district court. Okay, so there's the background. As far as the prior precedent in this particular court, the Third Circuit writes, quote, on September 4th of 2008, a day before one of the officers entered, subquote, lookouts for the travelers, and two days before their cabins were searched, we ruled for the first time on the constitutional propriety of border searches in the same context presented in this appeal. In a remarkable coincidence, searches of cabins aboard the Adventure of the Seas. In United States versus Witted, we acknowledged, subquote, the surprising dearth of authority on whether a search of a cruise ship cabin at the border is a routine search requiring no suspicion or a non-routine search requiring reasonable suspicion. We held for the first time that because of a passenger's, subquote, high expectation of privacy and the, subquote, level of intrusiveness, a search of a cruise ship cabin at the border is non-routine and requires reasonable suspicion. So the issue on qualified immunity here is that the Third Circuit's QI opinion came out on the 4th. The officer entered the bogus, you know, we call them bolos, be on the lookout, uh, but a bolo for these particular travelers, and then the search was done on the 6th. So you've got this three-day stretch, opinion on the 4th, look at on the 5th, search on the 6th. And the court basically said that wasn't long enough for the police to realize that what they were doing was unlawful. So they're entitled to qualified immunity because the traveler's rights were not clearly established. So that's the legal background. My question goes to the wording, the notion of something being clearly established. If it's clearly established, it would seem to me that it exists prior to the court recognizing it, that the court is noticing something that is already there. And if the court is going to decide that something is clearly established, there shouldn't be a lag time for when an officer should be expected to know it because, again, it's clearly established. So when the court rules on the 4th that you cannot do this, it shouldn't matter at all if the police are reading every single opinion every day it comes out. From that point in time forward, it should be clearly established and the officers should not be entitled to qualified immunity. This just adds to the complete spastic stupidity of the entire qualified immunity doctrine created from scratch by judges without any legislative intervention and the constant fucking cases that have come out from the Supreme Court and the Circuit Courts of Appeals have made a total goddamn mess of it. And I would like for our Congress critters, since they're not doing anything useful with ending the shutdown, it would be nice if they finally got around to abolishing this fucking doctrine outright because it is a disaster. How can you have something clearly established if it's only clearly established when a court decrees it so? It just doesn't make sense to me. 
So forgive my cracking voice, by the way. I've been coughing all day. So if you hear some squeakiness, that's part of why. Uh, So that's it as far as the court stuff goes. No general research news, nothing from our beloved federal government because they're not doing shit. In the state-by-state criminal justice fuckery, we're going to start in Arizona in Tucson, uh, where, quote, a Tucson police officer was arrested Sunday after allegations of unlawful sexual conduct were brought against him. According to the Tucson Police Department, Officer Richard Daniel engaged in unlawful sexual conduct with a woman he was investigating on January 13th. Police say they learned of the allegations four days later. After detectives investigated the allegations, they were able to get probable cause for the arrest of Daniel, a three-year veteran with the department. Daniel was arrested for one count of unlawful sexual conduct and one count of tampering with physical evidence. I wonder what that was. Uh, He was booked into the Pima County Jail. Police say detectives are continuing their investigation and additional charges are pending. Daniel has been sent a termination letter and was placed on leave without pay while the investigation continues. That's weird to me. If you're terminating him, how is he on leave without pay? Don't understand that. Police unions are weird. Who knows? But that's out of Arizona. In California, out of Orange County, I want you to listen to this entire sentence and just let it soak in because it is one hell of a lead to the particular story. It says, quote, A jury awarded $360,000 on Tuesday to the mother of a knife-wielding man who was shot and repeatedly stomped in the head by an Orange County Sheriff's deputy who was later awarded the department's Medal of Valor for his role in the deadly encounter. He killed a guy and got an award for it. Story continues, quote, The federal jury found that Deputy Michael Higgins used non-lethal excessive force against 21-year-old Connor Zion moments after Zion stabbed another deputy in the arm. The verdict indicates that jurors believed an initial volley of nine bullets fired by Higgins, which fatally wounded Zion, were justified, uh, but the jurors determined a second volley of nine more shots fired by Higgins, as well as the deputy repeatedly stomping on a dying Zion's head, constituted excessive force. So they shot the guy nine times, put in a new magazine, shot him nine more times. Meanwhile, they're just kicking his head as he's dying. Attorney Dan Stormer, who represented the Zion family, described the verdict as a condemnation of Higgins' conduct as well as justice for Connor. Subquote, it is a statement that citizens of this county will no longer put up with unconstitutional behavior by law enforcement. Meanwhile, taxpayers are on the hook for a third of a million dollars because this guy couldn't get his shit together. Uh, that's out of California. In Florida, this is a it's based out of Miami Day, but it's really a statewide issue addressing the implementation of Amendment Four. If you haven't heard of it, Amendment Four was ratified by sixty uh, percent of the people. And it restores voting rights to former felons. So Florida, like a lot of states, bans felons from voting. You have certain states like North Carolina where when you finish your term, you finish your sentence, you're released, you're off of post-release supervision and all that, you're automatically allowed to register to vote. All of your rights of citizenship are automatically restored. Uh, Other states like Florida used to have this really Byzantine mess, this labyrinth of stuff you had to go through. And felons were never allowed to vote even after they've paid their debt to society. So Amendment 4 was designed to address that, amended the state's constitution, and now they're trying to figure out how to implement it. 
And what you're finding is that the Republican-controlled legislature is trying to find ways to stop it from going into effect to keep these felons, who they presume are going to vote Democrat, uh, to stop them from registering to vote. So from the story, it says, quote, Like many Floridians who have been convicted of a felony, Clarence Office, 61, was excited to register to vote on January 8th when the state's Amendment 4 went into effect. He was part of a slow but steady stream of people with felony convictions making their way to the Miami-Dade County Supervisor of Elections. They wanted to register. Election offices across the state saw similar turnouts. Subquote, for me, it's like a sense of renewal, office said. Once you've done your time, you've served all your probation, you don't have anything pending or anything, you should be able to vote. But the Miami-Dade Clerk of Court's Office website has a notice that a mandatory fine is still owed for a 2006 felony case for which office had pled guilty. A few days after registering to vote, the unpaid fine of over $1,000 was brought to his attention. Florida's Amendment 4 advocates are worried about it, that under a certain interpretation of the amendment, hefty fines associated with felony charges will need to be paid before someone registers to vote. Amendment 4 went into effect on January 8th after being approved by more than 60% of the votes last November. And it says most people convicted of felonies in the state will have the right to vote restored, subquote, after they complete all terms of their sentence, including parole or probation. But in several state criminal statutes, specific fines are explicitly attached to the sentencing for a crime, while in others, fines are tacked on as orders from the court. If fines are considered a part of a criminal sentence, Florida residents could have to pay a minimum hundreds of millions of dollars in outstanding fines related to felony charges before they are able to vote, according to a WLRN analysis of state law and records. In many cases, paying off the fines could also mean funneling money to private debt collection agencies, which under state law can assess up to an additional 40% on the amount owed. Holy shit, that's insane. Uh, the intention of Amendment 4 is clear, but the vagaries of the word sentence are being bounced around the state legislature, which appears likely to take up implementing legislation that seeks to define the term. If you happen to be a Florida voter and you voted in favor of Amendment 4, make sure to keep an eye on your state uh, politicians because their ability to define words has the ability to impact what it is that you voted to put into place. Uh, also out of Miami-Dade, it, it's a big day for Miami. There's a story in the Miami New Times about a new lawsuit filed by a, a guy that was a kid. I mean, he's not a kid anymore, but he was 15 years old at the time he was indicted for murder, even though the government had proof that he didn't commit the crime. They indicted him anyway. So from that particular story, it says, quote, the case is one of the biggest black eyes in the history of the Miami-Dade Police Department and State Attorney Catherine Fernandez-Rundle's administration. In 2015, local cops, elected officials, and Rundle stood at a lectern and declared that then-15-year-old DeAndre Charles had murdered Joseph Raxon, a prominent New York City rabbi. Rundle then revealed an utterly ridiculous witness-drawn sketch that looked more like a discarded Muppets character than a real human being. And let me pause here. There's a link in the story, or a link in the show notes, rather, to the story, and there's this picture of the sketch, and it is comically bad. How the hell they arrested this kid based off the sketch, I don't even know, but it's ridiculous. Uh, story continues, quote, But roughly a year later, prosecutors were forced to admit that Charles didn't kill the rabbi. In an explosive lawsuit filed in federal court last Thursday, Charles's lawyers say they now have proof 
that both Rundle's office and the detective involved, Michael Bragic, possessed evidence from the beginning that proved Charles's innocence. Yet they charged the teen anyway and plastered his face on TV next to the humiliating sketch that later went so viral it became part of a Kevin Hart comedy routine. In short, the suit alleges the county could have and should have avoided ruining the life of an innocent 15-year-old by labeling him as a murderer. According to the suit, Bragic, the police detective, had ample evidence that a group of young men was involved in the killing. He was repeatedly told that Charles was home with his family when the homicide occurred. In fact, Charles's family now says that mere days after the killing, a confidential informant identified four men who were likely involved in the crime. Another civilian named two of the same men. Police interviewed one of those suspects in April of 2015. The man listed as J.S. in the lawsuit confessed. J.S. said he and three others who had been named by the tipsters were at the scene when Raxon was killed. Firearms evidence also linked one of those men to the slaying. But Bradrick and Rundle's office pushed the grand jury to indict Charles based on faulty DNA evidence and statements from the witness who drew the bad sketch. Story goes on from there. It's very long. It's a clusterfuck of clusterfucks. And they basically tried to destroy this 15-year-old black kid's life over a crime that he didn't even commit. So if you're in a Miami-Dade taxpayer, uh, hold on tight to your pocketbook because your fucked-up police department is going to be on the hook for paying a boatload of money that ultimately is going to come from your tax dollars. Uh, so those are stories out of Florida and Georgia in Muskogee County. Uh, we have a lot of cases of, of DA fuckery, Uh, And this is one of them where a Muskogee County Superior Court judge just had a blistering order against the district attorney's office for dicking around and leaving a guy in prison for almost four years without trial. Uh, From that story, it says, quote, a Muskogee County Superior Court judge reduced the bond of a man facing a sex crime charge this week. But in doing so, he wrote a scathing condemnation of the district attorney's office and its delay in bringing indictments. Stanley Andrews has been incarcerated for more than 1,370 days, awaiting grand jury indictment on three charges, aggravated sodomy, obstruction of a law enforcement officer, and battery with physical harm. Now, if you're not good doing math on the fly, that's about 46 months, 3.7 years uh, story continues, quote, in his order issued Tuesday, cutting Andrews's $16,600 bond in half, Superior Court Judge Ben Land wrote that long-term incarceration without indictment or a trial date, subquote, simply cannot be tolerated in a free society. And Land did not stop there. The order continues, subquote, when an individual is locked up by our government for years with no formal criminal charge being asserted, justice is compromised and public trust is eroded. This is not what our Constitution contemplates and not the way our system is supposed to work. Good on him. We'll see how that turns out. My suspicion is Andrews isn't going to be able to afford the $8,000 bond either, uh, but Hopefully the DA's office will get around to finally indicting him. Uh, Out of Illinois, in Chicago, we have the third rule again. Well, I don't even know if this qualifies as a third rule per se. So the third rule of Fisk is that there are no new stories, just new names and jurisdictions. But this is a name and jurisdiction you've heard about before. Uh, because we're talking about famous Chicago police detective Ronaldo Guevara. We've talked about this guy in episode 42 and 47 and 72. 
because he had a long-standing practice of framing innocent people for crimes they didn't commit, and Chicago taxpayers have been paying through the nose since then in civil suits as other folks have been getting exonerated. And BuzzFeed actually started all of this. BuzzFeed did an expose, and that what, that's uh, what led to the discoveries. Uh, from the story, it says, quote, A man who claims retired Chicago detective Ronaldo Guevara framed him for a 1993 murder had his conviction overturned today by the Cook County State's Attorney's Office. Geraldo Iglesias, who spent 17 years in prison, is now the 10th Guevara defendant to have his conviction overturned since April 2017 when BuzzFeed News published an investigation in which more than 50 people accused him of framing them for murders they say they didn't commit. Moments before a judge sentenced him in 1995, Iglesias told the court, subquote, I would like to say that I apologize, and I'm sorry for what happened to the young lady, and I send my condolences to the family, but I would like to say I had nothing to do with it, and the Lord knows I had nothing to do with it. Iglesias was released from prison in 2010, but had been fighting to clear his name of the murder charge, which kept popping up during job interviews and housing searches. We call those collateral consequences. Uh, initially, the state's attorney's office had fought to keep the conviction on the books, but in a statement to BuzzFeed News on Wednesday, a spokesperson wrote, subquote, we no longer have confidence in the integrity of this case. Therefore, in the interest of justice, the state's attorney's office will not pursue the charges. Iglesias's conviction hinged on the testimony of... Let me pause. I want you to listen to this and let this sink in because, wow. Iglesias' conviction hinged on the testimony of a jailhouse informant who allegedly told Guevara and his partner that Iglesias had confessed the murder to him. That jailhouse informant, Francisco Vicente, told police that he had received five separate confessions in three separate murder cases just in the span of a couple weeks in 1993. We call these guys professional snitches. Most of the stuff they come up with is bullshit. The uh, story continues, subquote, uh, Vicente has since given sworn statements claiming police fed him details of the crime and coerced his false testimony. So that guy is now scot-free. His conviction has been wiped out. And, of course, the actual murderer is still out there somewhere because when police frame somebody, they arrest the wrong person for the crime. The actual perpetrator goes free. So that was out of Illinois. In Maryland, I know these rules apply. We have both the first and fourth rules of Fisk. Uh, the first rule is that police will continue to do dumb shit even when they are being recorded. And the fourth rule is that The Wire was a documentary. From that story, it says, quote, A teenager said he feared for his life when a Baltimore police officer arrested him. The 17-year-old boy claimed he did nothing wrong, saying he was just trying to get video with his cell phone of an incident involving officers. City police arrested the juvenile at a bus stop. He spoke anonymously with the 11 News I-Team, that's the news, uh, uh, the TV station that's doing this, saying he felt fear, confusion, and chaos as a police officer arrested him. Subquote, he slams me on the ground, I fall on my back, then he jumps on me and he comes down on his knee, right on my chest, and I can't breathe, the teen said. He claimed all he did was to try and take video of an incident involving police and his friend. Subquote, I was a concerned citizen at the time and a concerned friend. The juvenile was arrested shortly after police investigated a fight outside a nearby McDonald's. The teen said he knew nothing about the fight. He and his friends were heading home when officers had the teen's friend sit on the curb. I asked the officer, can I have your badge number? And he didn't answer me, the teen said. 
uh, in the video, someone yelled at the police that they had the wrong people involved in the fight. Subquote, it wasn't even them. I'm the one who called, a witness at the scene said. That person is an administrator from the nearby Ace Academy. Uh, the teen said he suffered a busted lip and an injured shoulder and neck. He went to a hospital and then to juvenile detention on a charge of hindering police. Uh, subquote, I was mortified looking at this and scared for my son's life, the teen's mother said. There's more to the story from there. Uh, it's worse than it sounds. Basically, someone called about a fight. The police found the totally wrong people. And when someone exercised their constitutional rights under the First Amendment to record police in public doing their duty, uh, he basically got attacked by this particular officer and arrested, and the charges are going to be dropped. Uh, but it's a travesty that it happened in the first place. So that's out of Maryland. In Michigan, in Northville, so we usually cover police. That's our main focus. Every now and then we also talk about firefighters. And we have this guy here who went above and beyond trying to stalk an ex-spouse. But before we get into it, props to the news organization that covered this story, WDIV Channel 4. They run the clickondetroit.com website. Uh, normally when there are stories about domestic violence, the media tries not to put information about the victim in there because they didn't choose to be part of this news story. And that's the right approach for sure. But a lot of times they will slip up. And, you know, just based on their word choice, you know, they, they accidentally have a gender pronoun in there or there's information about where the person works or goes to school or the type of relationship they were in with the stalker. Uh, you can usually piece together who the person is. The folks at WDIV have scrubbed everything on this so thoroughly I can't tell you really anything about the victim. I don't know if it's a, a guy or a girl. I don't know if they were dating or just cohabiting or what. I don't know. All I know is that at some point, this person, whoever they are, was in the same home as this particular stalker. Uh, and that's all we've got. So props to them. It was an exceptionally well done job because the story itself is fairly long. Uh, there's a lot of information. Not going to give you all of it. I'll give you a link in the show notes, of course. But I was impressed because I was trying to go through and figure out what I could figure out. And there's almost nothing there, which is how it should be in these types of cases. Uh, so from the story, it says, quote, a former Northville firefighter is now behind bars on accusations. He used a helicopter and a firearm while stalking a terrified victim in Canton Township. Uh, according to police reports, Patrick Nolan has a long list of violations against the victim, including a personal protection order violation, discharging a firearm, and then using a police helicopter to harass the victim. I don't know how that happened. So in all the story, that is not explained. But this guy has been using a helicopter against this particular individual. It's That's nuts. Like you're taking stock into a whole new level when you're using a helicopter there. Uh, in addition, apparently he also set his own house on fire. Story continues. Nolan's home on Sheffield Court in Plymouth Township went up in flames on New Year's Eve. Uh, nobody was home at the time. You also read through the story. He's also threatened to kill this particular victim. He stalked them on Instagram trying to sign up for multiple fake accounts and on and on it goes. It's a long story. This particular guy is bad news. Hopefully he's locked up for a lengthy period of time. Uh, out of Missouri and St. Louis, this is another case where prosecutorial misconduct is being looked into. Uh, from the story, it says, quote, a state grand jury is looking at evidence suggesting perjury was committed by circuit attorney Kim Gardner's team during the Eric Greitens sex case. We talked about this one. I don't have the episode number. We'll put it in the show notes. But this was the former governor who was uh, indicted for, 
I can't remember. I think it was like threatening someone uh, if they revealed that he was having an affair with them. I, I can't remember the details. But anyhow, he ended up, in lieu of his prosecution, he resigned from the governorship. Uh, story continues, quote, with a court-appointed special prosecutor in charge, a state grand jury for several weeks has been hearing evidence in a downtown courtroom. This follows a long police investigation prompted by complaints filed by Greitens' team that Gardner's out-of-state investigator, former FBI agent William Tisaby, lied under oath during a deposition in the run-up to the invasion of privacy trial that was dismissed. At the time, Greitens' team also accused Circuit Attorney Kim Gardner of suborning perjury or standing by while Tisaby made false statements under oath. Gardner has denied the allegations. Testimony is scheduled to continue this week. No word on how close the grand jury is to deciding whether anyone might be formally charged. Uh, so next is out of New York in New York City. We have the first rule of Fisk again. Police will continue to do dumb shit even when they are being recorded and in this particular case did not know they were being recorded because it was a school surveillance video that did them in. Uh, but if you are a New York City taxpayer, know that your government is on the hook for a $2.25 million settlement. Uh, because of some shenanigans taking place with the NYPD. Story says, quote, A Brooklyn cyclist who said he was shoved into a parked car by an NYPD detective in 2014 has now been awarded a $2.25 million settlement after a court ruled against the city for repeatedly failing to produce relevant evidence in a timely manner. I'm going to note what the judge ruled was that the city's answer to the lawsuit was going to be struck as a sanction for discovery violations. So we're going to get into that in a minute, but just know that is coming. Story continues, quote, Charles Puccio, 62, was riding his bike in Brooklyn in 2014 when Detective Noel Lawrence appeared to push him as revealed in video footage later released of the incident. The contact caused Puccio to swerve and slingshot about 10 feet over a parked car, his lawyer said. He suffered permanent injuries to his neck, back, and left knee, which required three surgeries. Lawrence, who was undercover at the time of the incident, reportedly denied under oath that he made any physical contact with the cyclist at all. A public school camera captured video evidence that appeared to show otherwise, but that footage was not provided by the city until nearly four years after litigation began. Uh, Subquote, that started a trend of bad faith efforts to turn over discovery that was discoverable. Attorney Samir Chopra, who represented the cyclist during the bench trial, told Gothamist, which is the news story where we pulled this from. Uh, Subquote, they were trying to frustrate the discovery process. As part of the city's defense, city attorneys attempted to paint Puccio as a drug dealer. Subquote, because he was a white guy riding his bike through the projects. The detective also claimed that he had the right to stop Puccio because he was briefly riding on the sidewalk. Now, keep in mind, this officer has claimed he didn't touch Puccio at all. How the hell were you going to stop him? Uh, there is no bike lane in the particular area of this particular street, and video footage shows that Puccio swerved onto the road's shoulder to get around Lawrence's unmarked police vehicle. Allegations that the city was withholding evidence became an issue when the trial finally began this past November. According to Chopra, attorneys were not given the internal investigatory file on the incident until day three of the bench trial, by which point the detective had already been placed on the stand. Now, these sorts of files, 
you're supposed to turn them over automatically. So like with federal civil cases, as part of discovery, you have certain disclosures that you're required to make affirmatively, like when the case starts. You say to the other side, these are our witnesses, these are some of the documents we're expected to turn over, et cetera, et cetera. And then each side sends discovery requests to the other that are always very expansive and demand all sorts of documents. And one of them is always going to be the internal investigation file, which they're obligated to turn over. So when you're getting it in the middle of trial, while the person that it's about happens to be on the stand has already testified for a span of time already, that's usually because someone's trying to hide something. They're trying to play shenanigans. They want to make sure you don't have time to go through the entire file and figure out what it is that they have on this particular officer. It's something where had they turned in the, the entire file over you know, a few days before trial, it wouldn't have raised as big a red flag that, hey, there's something hiding in here as it does when you turn it over in the middle of trial. So, of course, that triggered the attorneys making the motion for sanctions uh, that ultimately was granted and led to this particular settlement. But what you found out was that, yes, there was video hiding as part of this internal investigation file. Uh, the story continues, quote, typically such information would be provided to attorneys prior to the start of trial. Sorry, I should have read that part before I gave you my aside about discovery. Uh, a spokesperson for the New York City Law Department attributed the delay to difficulty in locating the police Police file, subquote, as a result of confusion over the existence of an NYPD internal investigation into the incident, documents concerning the investigation were not produced in a timely fashion, and the court struck the city's answer, effectively resulting in a liability finding against the city. Nick Paolucci, director of public affairs at the law department, said in a statement, subquote, since damages remained the only issue subject to litigation, this resolution of the case was in the best interest of the city. So the story goes on from there. We'll give you a link to it, uh, but it's going to be a hefty payout to this particular guy because the police hid evidence, lied under oath about it, and then voila, there's magically a video in a file turned over in the middle of trial. Uh, out of Pennsylvania, we have two separate police officers in the same county are both sitting in jail for sexually assaulting women uh, in Ashley with the Ashley PD. Quote, a suspended police officer is headed to trial on sex charges in Luzerne County. Mark Icker is locked up facing charges. He used his role as a police officer in the borough of Ashley to sexually assault women. Since he was first charged in December, two other women have come forward accusing Iker of forcing them to perform sex acts to get out of traffic tickets and other violations. He is currently charged with coercion and sexual assault. He has at least three victims that we know about. And then in Wilkes-Barre, which is just a couple miles up the road, state police have arrested a Wilkes-Barre police officer and are charging him with sexually assaulting four female victims. Investigators believe Robert Collins, 53 of Mountaintop, sexually assaulted the victims while he he was on duty and performing his function as a police officer. State police say the incidents happened between August 2013 and December 2014. Collins has been charged with rape, indecent assault, and official oppression. Investigators claim Collins used his authority as a police officer to force the women to perform sex acts on him. He would then threaten to physically harm them if they told anyone about it. According to the Wilkes-Barre Police Chief, Collins has been with the department since 2007. He is currently suspended with pay pending an investigation. We call that paid vacation for crimes he committed five years ago now, five, six years ago, that are just now being uh, you know, brought forward with charges. 
That's crazy to me. You go ahead and sexually assault someone, they'll give you paid vacation after you get to get away with it for a few years. So that's out of Pennsylvania. In Tennessee, out of Chattanooga, this is our last story for this particular episode. Uh, Basically, it's the first rule of Fisk again. Police will continue to do dumb shit even when they're being recorded. And this involved a traffic stop where the driver threw a bag of drugs out of the window when he saw that he was going to be pulled over, uh, which as a sidebar, that rarely works because usually the police will find the drugs and then you catch an extra charge for obstructing the uh, officer. But we'll cover that later. Uh, But in this case, all the charges are going to be dismissed because the police officer beat the shit out of the driver and it was all caught on video. From the story, it says, quote, a Chattanooga police officer has been suspended with pay. We call that paid vacation uh, and is under internal investigation after body camera footage emerged Friday of him punching a 37 year old man repeatedly during a recent arrest. Chief David Roddy confirmed Officer Benjamin Piazza is being investigated for a 2018 traffic stop, but declined to comment further citing the criminal charges that the citizen, Frederico Wolf, now faces as a result of the interaction. Uh, Sidebar, in a separate story, a day later, those charges were dropped. Uh, Story continues, quote, The Chattanooga Police Department is aware of a video circulating on social media relating to a traffic stop that occurred on March 3rd, 2018, Chief Roddy said in a statement. Subquote, more importantly, we share in the concern it has caused in our community. Let me assure everyone that your police department and its internal affairs unit are reviewing all related materials, videos, and evidence, and a formal internal investigation has started. Uh, Roddy's announcement came a few hours after the Chattanooga Times Free Press first published the video Friday, with Chattanooga Mayor Andy Burke agreeing in a separate statement that, subquote, a full investigation into potential misconduct is warranted. Around 3.30 in the morning on March 18th, Officer Piazza claimed he stopped Wolf for speeding and then ordered him out of the vehicle after he saw the 37-year-old toss two baggies out of the passenger side window. The wolf complied at first. He pulled away and began to subquote actively resist officers. Piazza wrote in a criminal arrest affidavit. Uh, Piazza continued that after a subquote brief struggle, they placed Wolf in the back of a cruiser, transported him to the Hamilton County Jail, and charged him with tampering with evidence, drugs for resale, possession of a controlled substance, driving under the influence, speeding, and resisting arrest. But the Times Free Press obtained police body camera footage that Wolf's recently retained lawyer said shows unnecessary escalation from Piazza. Defendants typically receive evidence from prosecutors who in turn receive it from police that likely happened with Wolf, but the Times Free Press could not find any previously listed attorneys for him. Nearly a year later, and after three delayed court dates, a judge sent his charges Wednesday to a grand jury. Subquote, we're looking forward to a rigorous defense on these charges, including the resisting, his attorney said. I don't know why it took almost 10 months to send the case to the grand jury, but my suspicion is the longer it gets delayed out, the less amount of time somebody has to file a civil action. In the body camera footage, Piazza approaches the vehicle with his gun drawn already and orders Wolf to, subquote, get the fuck out of the car and put your hands up around the same time that Wolf opens his door. Wolf steps out with his hands raised and places them on top of the car with his back to Piazza. Though he turned his head and started to ask a question, Wolf never appeared to physically resist. As Piazza is handcuffing Wolf, he repeats his order to subquote, put your fucking hands on the car or I'll beat the shit out of you. Think about that for a minute. As he is being handcuffed, 
The officer is telling this guy to put his hands on the car. Now, had Wolf actually done that, he would have been resisting and gotten the shit beat out of him. Uh, so it's obvious the officer was trying to cover his ass, basically trying to provide a pretense to beat this guy. So what happens is Wolf falls to the ground. Piazza punches him about 10 times, and Wolf is actually crying. This grown man is crying as he's having the shit beat out of him on the ground. Piazza then puts his knees on top of Wolf's side, and then a few minutes later, uh, Piazza and another officer pick Wolf up, place him in the back of a cruiser, and search his car. They found baggies that contained three grams of marijuana and one gram of cocaine. So I mentioned that the guy's cases, the uh, charges rather against him have been dropped. The DA's office decided they didn't want to prosecute. The reason why they're not doing that is because if they try to prosecute, the information about this particular officer is going to come out and the guy's going to be found not guilty. Officer is on paid vacation while the investigation takes place. And the DA has asked the Tennessee Bureau of Investigation to look into it. So we'll give you a link to that story in the show notes. Uh, so folks, that is it for this Thursday mini pod. That's about 15 ish stories of criminal justice fuckery. We hopefully will have another episode on Monday with 15 more. If you liked what you heard, please do us a favor, leave us a rating on Apple podcasts or Stitcher or TuneIn or Spotify or wherever you happen to get your podcast. Leave us a written review. Please tell your friends, post on Twitter, uh, and we will talk to you next Monday. On behalf of myself and Mike, the sound guy, have a blessed weekend. Take care.